Hello and welcome to Banter on the Parkway. This week we're going to talk about the Villanova loss, the St. John's win, the emergence of Dontarius James and Kiki Tandy, and what Xavier needs to go deep in the Big East this year. All that, plus an impromptu grammar lesson, coming up next. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Banter on the Parkway. I am Brian from BannersOnTheParkway.com and I am joined this week by a man who of all the podcasts about all the basketball teams in all the Big East, he just happens to be in mine. It's Brad. Brad, how you doing? I like that introduction way better than the usual. Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Had a good holiday season. Ready to start a new shift at work and... Uh, yeah, can't, no complaints here, as per the norm. Well, to, to full disclosure, Brad, uh, it was the Golden Globes this weekend, which I neither understood or paid any attention to, but I'm doing movie quotes to introduce you guys this week. And speaking of which, a man is joining us who just loves the smell of napalm in the morning. It's Joel. Joel, how are you? I'm doing great. I love the smell of napalm in the morning because when the morning comes around, that means my shift is over and I get to go home and go to bed. So anything short of nuclear war is, uh, is a pleasant sign for me at that point in the day. Right. It's way better than what Brad loves the smell of in the morning. So. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Let's talk about the Villanova game. Uh, we all talked about this uh, when we were previewing the Big E schedule as the most important game of the season. Uh, Xavier went on the road to Villanova uh, in, in a close fought 68-62 game. They lost. Um, Xavier surrendered a 17-0 lead in the first half and never got the game back within a possession uh, coming up short in the end in Philadelphia. So that took us to Sunday with Xavier 0-1 in the conference and uh, needing a win to right the ship against St. John's. They did pull that off by a score of 75-67. to 67. Um, Some themes from that game, obviously, we'll get deeper into the play of Kiki Tandy and Dontarius James, both of whom came off the bench to great effect for Xavier during that game. Um, but the first thing we want to uh, ask about, Joel, is did Quentin Gooden have a good game or a bad game against St. John's? Because he seems to really be dividing the opinion in Xavier's fan base. Uh, so can you walk us through that? Because there are numbers that you could look at and you could go either way on his performance. So what did you see out of Quentin Gooden that game? Just I'm going to wind back just to the Villanova game for a second. Okay. Xavier didn't surrender a 17-0 lead. We surrendered a 17-0 run, um, which in, in the end was just as depressing as watching a 17-0 lead go away would have been. Fast forward to present day to talk about my eldest here. He had a good game against St. John's, and I'll tell you why. Because I love him. And also, <laughs> because... He could literally uh, punt the ball into the stands, and you'd be like, solid punt. <laughs> Right. I Yeah, coffin corner. <laughs> Good air time. Quinn Gooden has some jobs on the court, and those jobs are primarily to get the ball to his teammates in positions where they can score, to not get the ball to teammates of guys on the other team, 
and to shoot the open shots that the defense gives to him. And he knocked home a hat trick in those departments. Uh, St. John's was pressing the entire court end line to end line. You don't have to look any farther than Najee Marshall's stat line to see how effective that was. But X coughed the ball up on a quarter of their possessions. Only one of those uh, was Q's. When they managed to get the ball into his hands, they got it down the court. One for one so far. Then once we got into the half court, he had five assists, which led the team. So, I mean, in fact, it led the game. Nobody nobody had more than five assists. And, you know, he's doing his job. You're not looking for a barn-burning offensive performance out of Q necessarily as far as the points column goes. But he's setting his teammates up. He got into the belly of the defense well, laid it off, gave people easy buckets. And then he took the shots basically that the defense dared him to take. He was 0 of 6 from behind the arc. Um, I did a little digging into the numbers, and it turns out that's not good. But interesting. he, um, you know, it wasn't like he was shooting key, heat check threes. He wasn't shooting contested threes, and he wasn't shooting early in the shot clock. Uh, basically, the ball got into his hands in positions where you're not going to wince when he takes it. Uh, you're just going to wince if it doesn't go in. So uh, at, at a certain point in time, if a guy's on the floor and he's not going to make the defense at least think he might shoot a wide-open jump shot, you're doing something close to playing five-on-four. Before that little goose egg that he laid, he was our leading three-point shooter. And the fact that teams have to at least approach him on the arc opens up the rest of his floor game. So. Um, the one of eight shooting line is going to draw a lot of attention uh, from people who don't want to see good things uh, in Q's stat line and deservedly so, because obviously that's not very good, but he was six of six from the line. He didn't cough the ball up. He set his teammates up. Those are the things you need to see from Q and those are things that he did. And that was a huge contribution to being able to, to keep St. John's at bay. And I think you look at the one thing that Coach Steele really um, seemed to get on him about after the Villanova game was his defense. You look at the two guys St. John's has um, running the point primarily in Nick Rutherford and Rasheem Dunn. They were combined two of 16 from the floor. So he really stepped his game up on the defensive end, um, which is something that might not show up as much in the box score. But if you look at the opponent's box score and their guards really had trouble scoring the ball, um, outside of Mustafa Heron, who, who's not really a guy who, who they put on the ball a whole lot. Uh, so their, their point guards really struggled with Q uh, as he was guarding them. So, uh, yeah, there were a lot of divided opinions about Q that game. I thought he, he had a, a good game, not his best game for Xavier, but um, I thought he was good. Um, so, Brad, was this uh, a sign that Xavier's shooting is pulling out of a slump, or was this just a, a blip? in a um, bleak landscape as far as Xavier's three-point shooting. I think that the three-point shooting has been pulling out of a slump for quite some time now, and that comes with the caveat that I'm aware that they went to Villanova and shot one of 11 from the floor. <laughs> I'm sorry, from behind the arc. What if 11 from the floor would have really been bad? I was going to say, free throws. <laughs> too many turnovers, arguably. <laughs> That's how they surrendered that 17-0 lead. Prior to that, 
we'd shot the ball better. I mean, I think we've reached the point of the season where we can comfortably say that Xavier is not a good three-point shooting team. They're not going to rebound to become a three good three-point shooting team. I think this is kind of what you're looking at. On the other hand, I think you can also say that it's the overall number, which is about 29% right now, is being dragged down by their early season. I mean, woes doesn't even begin to describe it. But against TCU, they were 7 of 15. That's certainly livable. They were 9 of 27 against St. John's. And, you know, Q missed all six that he took against Western Carolina. They were 8 of 17. Those are, I mean, two of those numbers are really good. The St. John's number is certainly enough. And like Joel said when he was talking about Q, he's got to take those shots. Um, I actually think his O of 6 from behind the arc is a good barometer of how well the person you're talking to knows the game of basketball. Um, yeah, I'd like to see that be 2 of 6. Even 1 of 6 would have been nice. But he's he has to take those shots. Like you said, you can't play you know, 4 on 5 and leave them with a free man to run to somebody else. So, yeah, Xavier's shooting is getting better. Um, at the start of the season, I wrote an article that said somewhere between 33 and 35% was what it was going to take for them to win games this year. Um, they shot 33% against St. John's. They won the game at exactly the margin and score that Kemp Palm thought they would do it. I think if they can keep their heads above that 30% mark and shoot just well enough to make teams come out and play them, it opens up the inside and gives our bigs a chance to work and also gives Najee Marshall the room that he needs to get into the lane and do things. Because unlike the rest of the team, I don't think, I think that Najee's 34%, 35% as a freshman was a blip. He shot 27.7% last year. He's shooting 27.8% this year. I think that's what he is as a three-point shooter. But when he can get into the lane, he's still an elite scorer. And if we can open up the lane a little bit for him by a couple other guys making shots, then we're doing well enough. He doesn't need a lot of space. He's demonstrated that. Okay. Um, so what exactly are we to make of this team now? Two games into the conference season, um, a significant portion of Xavier's overall regular season is done. Um, and they're sitting at 12-3, and 1-1 one and one in the Big East. Uh, is this a great team that's not quite hit their stride yet, or uh, is this just a solid team that cannot be consistent enough to be more and challenge for the Big East title? Uh, so, Brad, which which do you see here? Um, Probably the negative one, right? Yeah, I was going to say I'm going to play to my role and go for the <laughs> the negative one. I, right now, Ken Tom has them 34th in the nation. That feels just about right to me. Um, they just don't have the scoring to be much better than that. Net has them at 41 last I looked. Bart Torvik's got them at 43. Eh, that seems kind of low, but I mean, you're quibbling at that point. Um, You can't turn the ball over on 20% of your possessions and shoot less than 30% behind the arc and really be that good of a team. Um. They gotta. They can either really clamp down on the defense, and this is the best defensive team that Xavier's had since Sean Miller's last year. They're 18th in the nation in opponents' effective field goal percentage, or they can somehow find a way to score the ball that through 15 games they've not really shown yet. Uh, I think the defense maybe can get a little bit better, but I don't see 
something changing on the offense. Unless, and I think this is the great question that hangs over this season, Kiki Tandy just broke out. If he did, that changes an awful lot, and that changes where this team can go. All right, so yeah, thank think, you. Uh, sorry, uh, but just, you know, Kiki had a good game against a team that is a kind of good defense. And St. John's hangs a lot of their defensive efficiency on turning teams over, but they're also a miserable defensive rebounding team. And Kiki isn't getting his, uh, you know, his offensive contributions from hitting the glass. St. John's is a a decent um, effective field goal percentage defense and Kiki found his shots and he hit them. Obviously this is looking way down the road, but, you know, I think Xavier is going to be a team where you look at them now and you say, man, they are right there. If they could just get a couple things ironed out. Brad mentioned that they're garbage three-point shooting and mediocre ball security jump off the page at you. And that's a good place to start as any in terms of getting things figured out. But they had the ball in the air with less than a minute left to tie Florida. They had the, the ball in the air when the horn sounded to beat Wake Forest. Nova is the only game that they have not um, had possession with a chance to tie in the last minute so far this year. So, I mean, the, the resume is a couple of bounces from being really nice. And I think they'll ride that edge between a, a really good team that hasn't hit its stride and a team that is just continually hamstrung by the things it can't do right on into March. And then it's going to be about anywhere from one to six matchups to determine how deep they go in the tournament. And uh, Joe Lunardi right now has them as like in the eight, nine game against Houston for a chance to play Gonzaga basically in a home game. Oof. And right. (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) side note, and this is ridiculously stupid, but there's a, a, a pod being hosted in Spokane, home of Gonzaga, and for some reason the University of frickin' Idaho is the host school. I don't know how that happened, but March... Spokane, Idaho, man. <laughs> but, You're must, thinking of a different Spokane. Beside him. So, I mean, if we could play some games in Cintas and somehow convince the NCAA that Evansville was actually hosting that pod... I would be delighted. This is the West Coast equivalent of that. Wait, are you being you serious? All like, that I've not, I've not heard that. It's a genuine thing that's happening. Like Gonzaga is going to open the NCAA tournament with literal home games. Well, I mean, there's a chance that they lose like eight games in their conference and end up a 14 seed. But yeah, is the short answer to your question. Wow, that so, is crazy. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was clicking through, and this is this is just really good content. I was looking for exactly when the tournament's going to start so I could request that time off, and I was looking at yeah, you were. the sites where it's going to be hosted because, hey, why not? And I was like, University of Idaho is hosting in Spokane? What the heck? And I clicked it, and unless Wikipedia is lying to me, yeah, there uh, there's some home games on the, 
Horizon for Gonzaga unless they spit the bit and like end up in the NIT. Anyway, all that to say that Gonzaga is not a horrible matchup for Xavier. And I think what this season's going to come down to is getting into a position where you're going to be looking at your bracket and thinking, how many rounds can I pick my favorite team to win? And seeing a lot of not a horrible matchup for us. And if you get one of those nights where, you know, Q's two or three of six instead of O of six, or Kiki's a flamethrower off the bench, or the defense locks in, or Naj or Paul drops 30, then this team's going to go. But I don't think it's ever going to get to the point where you're going to be like, I'm not too worried about the matchups because I know this team is just going to go out there and punch because they're they're just a, a hair limited to be that team in the NCAA tournament. I, this kind of – I was looking for recent comps for Xavier teams, and this is not a great statistical comp, but this reminds me of the fight season team um, where they just uh, – there was the fight – then there's three game loser right remember. after. <laughs> do you? The three game loser right after that, where you know we had guys suspended and guys coming back, and everyone you know on soapboxes. And I always thought of those three games as like a season unto themselves. But that team never got rolled. They had frustrating inconsistencies, and they didn't have a very good offense. They don't have the defense this team did. But then, just like you're talking about, they got matchups that worked for them. They got Notre Dame in the first round, and Notre Dame did not have a fast enough guard to contain Holloway or Lions, and they won that game. And then Lehigh knocked off Duke, and all respect to Lehigh and local boy C.J. McCollum. That wasn't much of a challenge in the second round, despite the fact we tried to make it one to begin with. And then they almost stormed back into that Xavier, or that Baylor game in the Sweet 16. And I kind of feel like that's where this season is. This team is actually, according to Ken Pomeroy, better than that team was mostly because of the defense. But we're in that, it's that same kind of thing where you look at them and think, why can't it just click a little bit more? And, you know, if you get that ball in the air to tie Florida or the one goes through the net to beat Wake Forest, are you really thinking about this team that much differently? If, you know, they're 14 and one instead of 12 and three, they're still going to be, you know, they're still going to have the same warts on the team there. They're not great. Sure. I mean, those things change the resume, but they don't really change the efficiency profile. Uh, Speaking of resumes, Bart Torvik has a tool where you can click to compare a team's resume to historic resumes. I don't know uh, exactly the nuts and bolts of it, and I probably wouldn't understand the math anyway. But he he lists some teams. He's got, um, you know, an 09 Minnesota team that lost in the first round. Um, You know, a bunch of teams that one one game and then there's like a 2010 Washington team that made the sweet 16 and a 2017 South Carolina team that went to the final four it just kind of backs up what we're saying you know not not good enough where you'd favor them to you know punch a ticket to the second weekend right off but not bad enough that you're worried there's just no matchup they can get where they're not going to be blind lucky they're just I mean, it's gonna it's gonna come down to how the cards shuffle out. I think in in March, which it always does to a certain extent. But this team, I mean, to put a bow on this season, it's gonna come down to 
who they get and how they show up offensively. Because if they can get just enough offensively and they're not matched up against, you know, some scorching hot team or a team that's just that much better than them, like UCLA was that year, then, you know, it's hard to say that they're going to be an easy out. So, Brian, I know you run this thing. Can we circle back to Kiki Candy and Dontarius James then and talk about how that changes things a little bit, especially I want to lead you in with a chance here to talk about your boy DJ. Yeah, well, so the the thing that this team seems to, or at least has seemed to lack a little bit, is um, an effective scoring punch off the bench you know Bryce Moore did it in the UConn game Zach Fremantle's done it a few times but there's nobody been that consistent in in coming off the bench and um scoring a lot and obviously um bench minutes was something that that contributed to uh the departure of Damir Bishop um but this game Candy and James both got in and uh were very effective. So I'll, I'll just camp on James for a second um, because he logged 26 okay. minutes, which was by far the most minutes he's played in any game so far in his entire career, pulled down seven defensive rebounds um, with one offensive rebound. He was only one of four from the floor, four of seven from the line, um, had two assists, a turnover and a blocked shot. If Xavier can continue to get that kind of production from him, even though his, line isn't glossy you know i mean that's a 93-0 rating you're not gonna write home about that although i did <laughs> wrote mama letter and was like did you see that um <laughs> but he came in and gave them um good defense uh i've always thought he was a guy who was quick enough to stick with some guards and big enough to not get bullied by bigger players and i think he showed that on sunday um but I think the thing that he really brought and that Tandy really brought is they both came out and were in attack mode right away. Um, And that's the thing that James has struggled with throughout his career is he's always looked a little iffy when he catches the ball. And uh, even though he was 0 of 3 from 3, he shot three times. You know, he he knew where he was going with it. He he drove and got an and one for his one uh, made field goal. And then Tandy, of course, was out there and – I mean, a couple of those three-pointers he took out of his first four, which he made all of them, were just, I mean, the ball was halfway to him. And you were like, oh, this is going up um, because he was fearless. And I think that is an element that Coach Steele is trying to instill um, because he always talks very favorably about these bench guys. Um, but it was really good to see <laughs> – the just the fearlessness that they came out and played with they didn't play tight um and so we'll talk more about them and what that means in the future but at least for this game i think it was huge for xavier um to be able to throw a couple guys out there who um were really ready to attack and they were ready to to go and and uh, grab the game by the scruff of the neck you look at the great xavier teams they've always had those one or two guys you could chuck in there off the bench. I mean, you go back to that like 08 team and if BJ Raymond didn't start, he was coming off the bench looking to knock some heads or CJ Anderson or Derek Brown or whoever, you know, it was coming off the bench. Um, and then of course, a couple of years ago when you couldn't start all of Cantor, O'Mara and Jones, 
one of them was going to come off the bench and, and do some damage. And Kaiser Gates excelled in a role off the bench. You had Paul Scruggs. I, I think that's going to be a huge thing for this team going forward is what those guys that are coming off the bench end up being. I think so. that speaks to uh, a, a question we had about, is this a deep team or not? And I think Don Terry's James might answer questions that we have about what this team's depth is going to look like. Heck yeah, uh, he will. Particularly <laughs> defensively. If he can be an adequate offensive player, I think you got to find some minutes for him because we are not a good rebounding team. What we are is a, a team of dudes with one good rebounder on it. And he happens to be maybe the best high major rebounder out there in Tyreek Jones. Other than that, we don't have a single player who is a, a minutes qualifier ranked by Ken Palm uh, nationally on either end of the glass. And I can't remember the last time we only had one dude doing that. Uh, Najee's defensive rebounding numbers are down. Dalmir Bishop, God rest him, was a great defensive rebounder in limited minutes. But Dontarius James is an excellent rebounder on both ends of the floor. And again, in that small sample caveat. And he can defend big dudes and perimeter guys at least adequately. And I, man, if he can, like, I don't need him to be an offensive buzzsaw, but if he can be somebody they have to play us five on five against on the offensive end, then he, I mean, we don't have the front court depth that we've had in years past, but if he gets going, that, that helps us. Uh, Cause Zach, Zach Fremantle um, statistically, his defensive strategy is to foul the guy eight times and hope five or fewer get called. And Jason Carter has been kind of okay defensively. He's I've been impressed by him as a uh, help side shot blocker more than I thought I would. But he's not like a lockdown guy. If if we can get DJ out there cleaning the glass and keeping his dude from running riot, I think that opens up the bench for us. I think a comparison. That's right. Uh, off the bench in one game or whatever he got, and we are just key guy <laughs> board for King James. <laughs> right. He played 49 minutes in the season prior to that, but he plays 26 in one game, and we're like, yeah. Can we extend contracts in this league? <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's get him that red shirt for last year, and uh, let's do it. I think a comparison I might make, and obviously it's early because he's had one game where he came in and, and played really well, um, but that's enough for me to uh, really run with it. Uh, if you guys know anything about me, I do not need a wealth of evidence before I'm like, all right, this guy's fantastic. Um, Kaiser Gates, two years ago, he was, he came off the bench primarily, um, and obviously I don't think DJ's going to throw out a uh, 122.40 rating, but he can almost be what, what Kaiser was for that team, where he was a guy who they could come out, they could throw him at a, a really good offensive player and know he was going to hold his own. Um, and then, you know, Kaiser picked his spots on offense. He was a really good offensive player, um, and we've not seen that much from James. But at the same time, James um, has been hitting the boards a little better than Kaiser 
ever did. So, uh, but I think he can be a similar type thing where they can throw him out there. They know that they can throw him on a good offensive player and trust him to, to stay with them, no matter if it's a big guy or a small guy. And um, he can, you know, find his spots on offense, grab some boards, give him some energy. And ultimately we just need somebody else who can play some minutes. <clears throat> Even if he's not that good every game, we've got to get something. Otherwise we're going to start running dudes into the ground. Um, somebody talked about them coming out in attack mode. I think that's what got Zach Fremantle so many minutes early in the season and has kind of got him in the rotation is that that dude has been fearless from the first time he stepped out there. And I think you can see a little bit of Da Bishop's departure in the fact that he kind of wasn't. He uh, would catch the ball and look lost or not be certain what to do with it, kind of like I wasn't certain where I was going with that sentence. <laughs> yeah, we were all in limbo. <laughs> I but, was just say, <clears throat> you know, and I'm not positive you landed it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. <laughs> but you know, Steele, it almost felt like there was a message in this game to Dontarius James that hey, if you go out there and work, take the shots. I'm not worried about if they go in. Just get out there and do what you're supposed to do. I'll play you. And he kept doing it, and he kept getting run back out there. I honestly thought that after that spell in the first half, you know, we were going to slide back into the normal rotation. But all credit to Coach Steele, he rewarded the effort he'd seen in the first half and ran him back out there. Um, yeah, and we, we just need to lengthen the bench out because we talk about Tandy and James. A lot of the reason they played a lot is because Bryce Moore played two minutes. And you wonder how much Bryce Moore's knee is really affecting him. Uh, but he did come out, play two minutes, and have two turnovers. Um, and so, you know, obviously <laughs> you, you're not lobbying for a lot more playing time when that's what happens. Um, but I'm not ready to stick a fork in, in Bryce Moore just yet. Um, we've spent a lot of time on James. Uh, as far as Tandy goes, I mean, we've we've read about him. We've heard about him. And, and the hype was he's going to be like a microwave, you know, instant offense. And, and we really saw it this game, I thought. Um, and really last game against Villanova when he came out, um, a couple of one of his threes, his first three he took rattled out. And I thought it was I thought it was down. Um the referee did not count it because it didn't actually go through the cylinder. Um, so goal Andy line technology. That play, I think. Yeah. So anyway, I'm I'm still upset about it. Anyway, uh, but we've seen that from him as well. And if he can continue to grow into that role as just the dude who comes off the bench and is ready to light somebody up, um, this team's upside. I guess what I'm going to put a pin in this by saying is this team's upside grows the more production you get from the bench because I mean the starters especially the four guys who came back from last year you pretty much can count on what you're going to get from them you know with, with Najee you know you're going to throw him the ball and he's going to try and put his defender on his heels and uh, get to the hoop with Scruggs he's going to come in and out of the game um, he's going to post up smaller guards with Q he's going to run the game He'll take his open three-pointers. But Tyreek, you can throw him the ball and watch him dunk and snarl and <laughs> dunk and snarl again and flex a little bit. Um, I wish he'd get better at his free throws, but I'm sure he does too. I think this team's ceiling is going to be determined by what those bench guys do um, because you cannot run five guys 40 minutes a game. Um, you could, 
actually. It's within the rules. It's just a bad idea. So, I, what I liked out of Kiki Tandy was you talked about it in Villanova. He shot the ball like he catches it. You said there were two that seemed like they were halfway up before he even touched them. Like that dude wants to score, and it looks like he's not struggling for confidence right now. Uh, there was one I didn't get to see the whole game because I was at work, but during lunch it was on in our break room, and there was one time he <laughs> caught the ball at the top of the key, and he just walked at his man yo-yoing it with crossover dribbles. I mean, he was clearly looking for his angle, and the St. John's guard took two big steps back rather than try to guard him 20 feet away from the hoop. So is it, they can tell that he's ready to make something happen. Um, Byron Larkin was talking about how Q likes to play outside on the arc and work the ball around that way, keep the defense in front of him so we can see what's happening and let the offense run. And Tandy adds a little bit different dimension when he has the ball because he wants to catch it and beat his man immediately and then see how the defense breaks down from there. So as a change of pace, maybe even on the court at the same time with Q, he really brings something off the bench that we don't necessarily have in a starter. In his one layoff for uh, Jones, where he did exactly that, he got the ball, he beat his man immediately, and the defense collapsed, and he just laid it off for Tyreek to dunk the basketball. I mean, I think Tyreek's goal in life is to dunk a basketball so hard it explodes, and I'm not positive it's a bad goal for him to have because he seems like he's close to achieving it. (laughs) Um, But just the way Tandy got that and uh, laid it off, quickly for Jones, he's not a one-dimensional player. He's not just a dude who catches it, shoots, or is looking, you know, he's not Brady Heslip or something like that. He's just trolling around the arc looking for his three-pointers. He's got a pretty well-rounded offensive game, and I think um, the more confidence he gets and the more uh, he gets back up to speed, I mean, he's still only played, what, nine or ten games in his college career. Um, I think the more we'll see out of him. I guess that was game eight of his college career. So now we've got some questions from you guys on Twitter and Facebook. Our first question is from at Kershu. Uh, excuse you. Uh, who will be running the point next year? Kiki, Dwan Odom, or Paul Scruggs? And will Steele revive the shooting guard position? So, Joel, um, you're kind of our, our point guard savant um, slash have had a crush on both D. Davis and Quentin Gooden. So you seem the most qualified to answer this question. Okay. Yeah, the uh, I'm just going to breeze right past the accusation of having a crush on either of those guys. I just admire their work and have a crush on them. Okay. <laughs> so as far as as far as Steel reviving the, the point guard position, shooting I mean, guard. I think the way that he, or I'm sorry, the shooting guard position, the way that he deploys the backcourt is. Um, kind of a function of personnel. And you look at next year, uh, two of the three options that, that Kershu gave me to run the point are combo guards. Neither Kiki nor Paul Scruggs is a pure point. And, uh, you know, you could play either of those guys on the ball, off the ball. You could play them in tandem. You could play them next to a, a true point guard. They've got a little bit of positional flexibility. Dewan Odom is more of the pure point guard kind of guy that we've been accustomed to with Q and with D Davis and with, you know, any number of point guards from Xavier's history. And uh, he, 
I don't know if he's going to be the guy you hand the reins to day one. Uh, he's going to come in athletically and certainly physically ready to play the college game. Uh, if you've seen it more than like a minute of his highlights, you've come away impressed by his athleticism and uh, just how strong he is. Uh, he kind of reminds me of Devontae Smith-Rivera, who is briefly a Xavier commit before he jumped ship to go less far in the NCAA tournament with Georgetown. Uh, Duan doesn't shoot it like that, but he is a uh, solidly built young man. The other thing that I think uh, isn't touched on here is the fact that um, Coach Steele has talked about staying older and he's talked about having a, a free scholarship that he's probably not going to fill with a 2020 guy now that Damir Bishop has moved on. I wouldn't rule out the possibility of Xavier looking into a, a veteran transfer, grad transfer kind of guy to come in and to, to hold down the point guard position. Uh, obviously losing a guy who's a three-and-a-half-year starter like Q's been, led the team in assists, um, on track to do it all four years. Moving him on, that's going to be a, a tough thing to replace. And I think uh, Kiki's got the skills to do it. I think uh, he and, and Paul Scruggs will spend some time on the ball if Paul's back next year. And certainly Dewan Odom, I anticipate him getting up to speed and being a contributor. But as far as Xavier using that, that extra scholarship, I would be more surprised if they went front court with that or left it open or uh, filled it with a recruit than I would be to see them uh, pursue some veteran backcourt help. So just keep an eye out for that as far as the possibilities the point guard next year goes. I think they should get Seth Towns, but that's just me. Anyway, uh, this kind of reminds me a little bit, the situation next year, and this is looking way down the road, uh, a little bit of that 2009 team uh, where you had had Drew Avender and Stanley Burrell as your backcourt. And then when they left, obviously the um, the reins kind of passed. Dante Jackson wasn't really a true point guard. You had Terrell Holloway there as a freshman. It was a little bit point guard by committee as that team figured it out and ended up making a, a really good run in the NCAA tournament. So I don't know that it's going to be um, a huge issue if everybody else uh, is clicking, um, but it will be something that will be interesting to watch, um, kind of like it was in that 2009 year where you weren't quite sure who was going to be the point guard. So anyway, um, we have one from at Walls 14 um, whose name is Jake. Uh, according to my script, was Sunday a flash in the pan, or do you expect to see more substantive minutes out of Tandy and James from here on out? So, Brad, um, you haven't talked in a while. How about you handle this one? I think that we've gone over this quite a bit. Um, and just to answer Jake's question, for Xavier to be <clears throat> successful down the road, we're going to have to meet, see more substantive minutes from Tandy and James from here on out. I think that's the easy answer to that. If Xavier's going to win games and have a good season in the Big East, we're going to need minutes from those two guys. So hopefully not a flash in the pan. All right. Uh, we have Brandon Burns uh, from Facebook. He says, curious as to more details about Miles Hansen and shoot arounds this guy's money from distance and considering our terrible three-point shooting, could he be useful? He looks to have size and strength. Maybe he struggles at defending. Um, so 
I'm just going to be honest. I've not been to any Xavier practices or, or shoot arounds, things like that. Um, but do you guys have thoughts on Miles Hansen and if he has a, a role um, here with this, this current squad? Man, I hate to go on <laughs> record commenting on a guy who hasn't gotten meaningful minutes in a year where we're 275th in the nation in percentage of minutes off the bench. Um, but I think the, the realistic approach to who Miles Hansen is on this team is that he is deep depth. I think he's an emergency Landon Amos kind of guy. If you see him on the court, it's probably a sign that something up the depth chart has gone horribly wrong. Uh, you know, there are smoking somebody. Right. (laughs) I guess if he's getting Landon Amos kind of minutes, it's probably a Landon Amos kind of situation, which by the way, God bless Landon Amos. I'm just going to throw that out there. And, and Eric Stanger. Um, Shouts to Eric Stanger. I was looking at him today. Did you know he played for us? We're in the Big East. <laughs> Isn't that wild? And they let, and they let us stay in the league. I like Eric Stanger. Yeah. Um, I have nothing personal against Eric Stanger. But, you know, Miles Hansen, there are a lot of guys who can make three point baskets in shoot arounds and. Uh, while they're wearing the warm-up kit. It's a whole different ball game once you step out there. Uh, like Brandon points out, you got to play defense as well as offense. Somebody's going to come out and defend you. Um, I don't think Coach Steele has ever been shy about taking out a dude who's uh, you know, a senior leader, taking out a dude who uh, is a highly tatted freshman. You know, He's not going to... Uh, let anything other than merit, I think, dictate minutes. And that's that's probably as good a place to, as any to end uh, the Miles Hansen discussion. I'm just going to say there are some people who cannot make threes and shoot around, and we need to respect them as well. Brad, I respect you. <laughs> Thanks. So, uh, <laughs> I didn't play for Xavier, though. <laughs> that's uh, – there's a reason for that. Anyway, uh, we have one from at Jerry Basketball. Um but at Jerry Basketball, I recognize your avatar, dude. You're Alan Iverson, and we are huge fans. So please, Alan, come on the pod. I know you're a Georgetown guy, but when we preview the Georgetown game, you can give us your take on Mac McClung and everything. But anyway, um, Alan, you ask, should Carter still be starting? So Brad, should, should I'm assuming he means Jason Carter. Should he still be starting? Um, Good. Well, you- podcast gold you got to start five that's so so i'm told inarticulate noises are where we make our money yeah i know it's not unlike the time that dad uh called that baseball game in college oh (laughs) and have we had a podcast yet target demographics of four this is just gold guys (laughs) let's keep it going so I'm assuming that where Jerry slash Allen is looking is Zach Fremantle. Um, And I think the simple answer to this question is that Zach Fremantle would be starting if you could count on him to play the whole game. But Zach Fremantle, maybe he's like that guy in scrubs 
who was just a hugger and had to be touching people all the time, or I don't know, it's probably just the usual freshman thing, cannot stop fouling people. So until he gets his fouls per 40 minutes rate down under five, I think you continue to see a lot of Jason Carter out there. I also think that Coach Steele, like he has said, <clears throat> likes to lean old. Um, Carter's got a lot of experience. He makes a lot of solid basketball plays on the defensive end, and he's really good at the line. Offensively, for some reason, and this is probably what merits the question, he just really seems to have lost his way. Um, he's not shooting the three-pointer like he normally does. He's 7% worse inside the arc than he normally is or than he has been in the past anyway for Ohio. Obviously, some of that is who he's playing against now, but he's turning the ball over at an inordinate rate. 23.7% uh, of the time Carter touches the ball, he gives it to the other team, and that's the highest on the team if you don't count Leighton Schrand. Um, uh, Why are you disrespecting oh. Leighton Schrand? Well, because what the heck was that drive by? Unbelievable. <laughs> Leighton Schrand. Well, you finish taking it and you finish making this point. Brad, you're in timeout. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. So he just no, but seriously, about Jason Carter. His O rating at Ohio was 109.4. I mean, he was a good player, but he wasn't setting the world on fire at Ohio U. And now his O rating at Xavier is 96.6, and that's with you know, the three-point line moved back a foot, which is where he was shooting it from. I mean, the the D1 average offensive efficiency is down four points. Jason Carter has jumped levels in a huge way, and his efficiency is down 13 points. I think maybe we're just seeing a little bit of an adjustment from him. And, uh, you know, he gets bagged on a lot for whatever reason, probably because he's not averaging the huge numbers that he was at Ohio U. But in Ken Palm tier A and B games, he's got a 96.80 rating, which, you know, we brought him in to supplement the core four and to be adequate. And, you know, I think maybe expectations around Jason Carter were a little high because the dude's been super adequate. He hasn't always looked like he's confident in his own adequacy, but the numbers don't lie. I like Jason Carter office drone that you've created here. <laughs> Jason Carter. Yeah. <laughs> Just a, but I mean, uh, did we bring him the team in usage rate? No. And I, I think the question is raised because he, he is just turning the ball over so much. And that's probably a function of that huge jump. I mean, it's one thing to play Eastern Michigan in a conference game. And it's a whole nother thing to go to Villanova to open the conference. It's true. I mean, realistically speaking, our best case scenario is for Jason Carter to be the fourth or fifth option, right? I mean, we brought him in knowing that we would prefer to have Najee, Paul, or Tyreek ending the possession. And I think in that context, maybe his his numbers take on a little bit better um, interpretation than what he was at OU. I don't know. So, yeah, I think he should still be starting. I, I do, too. If only because if you run Fremantle out there to start, he's, I mean, he's still only going to give you 20 minutes because he fouls people. He has one foul in 32 Big East minutes for whatever that's worth. 
Well, um, hopefully he's writing the ship. Down the rabbit hole a little bit. Uh, Carter did have a game last year in conference play where he turned the ball over seven times for Ohio U. Uh, that was at Central Michigan in a game where my boy, Larry Austin Jr., went for 19 points on 7 of 16 from the floor. Attaboy, Larry. <laughs> I love me some Larry Austin Jr. Central Michigan lines. Anyway, um, <laughs> I think we've beaten that one into the ground. And I've mentioned Larry Austin Jr., so I can die happy. Uh, we got Leisterbro. Um, sorry, at Leisterbro. Um, do you see any possibility that Kiki starts by the end of the year in what would be a pretty small lineup? So what I'm assuming he's saying is Kiki would start, you'd push Naj to the four, Paul to the three, and Kiki would probably start in the two, I guess, is what small lineup he's referencing. So is that a lineup maybe we might not see Xavier start with, but um, that Xavier could throw out as a change of pace? Yeah, I think the short answer to the question of Kiki starting in what you described, basically three-and-a-half-guard lineup, is no. In seeing that lineup, um, you know, utilized a little bit more, I think that's something that as Kiki continues to get healthy and continues to get his wind and uh, his confidence continues to grow, I think we'll probably see a little bit more of that lineup, but I'm not sure um, we're going to see a lot of Coach Steele using Kiki, Q, and Paul Scruggs all on the floor at the same time. I just, I don't think, I mean, that's that's three guys who like to have the ball in their hands. I think Paul Scruggs has done a really good job of fashioning himself into a guy who doesn't need to have uh, quite as much leather time to, to be effective. But Kiki and Q both are, are guys who are at their best with the ball. And uh, I can see them on the court at the same time. Uh, you throw Paul Scruggs out there, you're you're taking a team that's already not that great at defensive rebounding, and you're running them with three guards. Najee with a 15% D-Reb percentage uh, at the four. So you're basically saying if the other team misses, good luck, Tyreek. And uh, – you know, I'm not sure that's a philosophy that coach or philosophy that Coach Steele is going to espouse for too many minutes altogether. I mean, you look at the most frequently used lineups over the past five games, where Tandy has gotten most of his run. None of them feature all three of Tandy, Scruggs, and Gooden. A lot of them feature two of those guys, but um, I'm not sure. I'm not confident. I can say at no point have all three of them been out there at the same time, but it certainly seems like something Coach Steele is trying to avoid uh, with his lineup choices is having all of Scruggs, Tandy, and Gooden out there at the same time. Um, so, yeah, I don't know that that's an idea without merit. Um, what it seems like to me is that it's not an idea that um, Coach Steele seems interested in pursuing, at least not at this point. Um, but thank you for the question, Lee. Um, the last question we got uh, was from Jared on Facebook. You said, with the six asterisks you used, was it worth shortening podcast down to pod on our Facebook podcast announcement? He then put the quotation marks inside the question mark, um, which brings me to a question to Jared, um, who, full disclosure, is our brother, <laughs> Where did you learn how to use the English language? <laughs> like this reads like it's 
poorly translated from another language. Anyway, get better or stop trying, Jer. <laughs> That's good. Point. Everybody else, continue to send questions in. We will not mock your grammar on the podcast. No. It's, it's probably – Yeah, it's really important context that, that we know Jared in real life and don't like him. Right. The rest of you are, are – keep, keep it rolling. There is a really good chance that he won't physically accost me. Um, so Ooh, I don't we know gotta, about that. <laughs> no, not me. <laughs> Maybe you. Uh, we got a couple last quick hits. Um, do you guys have any New Year's resolutions? Um, Brad, did you put this in here? Tell um, us your I New did. Year's resolution. You know, I just to run farther than I did last year, ride farther than I did last year, we got our yearly numbers at work, and my goal is always just to improve on them a little bit. Nothing really earth-shattering. I don't need to, like, quit smoking fun like that so huh you're gonna keep smoking no i'm not i'm saying i i don't need i guess i could start this year so i can quit next year but that doesn't seem like a great idea Uh, i don't know seems easy Uh, yeah my news resolution was to be nicer to jer and uh that's kind of out the window already so (laughs) dang it (laughs) yeah i don't know that i have any new year's resolutions i guess you know watch more xavier um basketball but yeah toward the end of last year i couldn't watch them uh, because of some work things and stuff like that so i guess it's to to be able to watch xavier more and our five final quick hit here i don't know how much you guys really get to watch uh games other than xavier anymore um but uh who is your favorite non-xavier team to watch in college basketball Uh, i put this question here because i have my answer but is there anyone uh, you guys especially like to see if uh, you're just clicking around. Last year, I spent a lot of time watching Savannah State highlights. They played at the fastest pace um, of any team that had a decent offense last year and one of the faster paces since Ken Palm has been recording, and they were a blast to watch. I especially love Jaquan Dotson, who took almost 200 three-pointers last year and filled it up. And then he like vanished. I can't even find him on Google now. Savannah State's no longer a D1 team. Uh, so I guess this is also a partially someone help me find Jaquan Dotson plea. But I love to watch teams that play fast and shoot threes. Um, looking for somebody to replace that Savannah State hole in my heart. They also allowed 139 points in a game last year. So they were just both fun to watch and tragicomic on defense. Well, hopefully, if our listener base uh, gets gets it together, um, we can have you and Jake on Donson have a meet cute on the pod at some point. Um, now, full disclosure, we've lost Joel due to def- technical difficulties. His answer was uh, the Georgetown Hoyas because he enjoys Mac McClung and his scrappiness. Georgetown seems like a team that has a lot of fun playing together now. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, we, everybody's probably seen the clip of McClung following Quincy McKnight into Seton Hall's huddle the other night because uh, he didn't like the way McKnight was talking to him or something. I'm not sure, um, but he, he just had a lot of fire in there, a lot of fun to watch right now. Um, they're, of course, 0-2 in the Big East, but um, McClung himself has been filling it up lately. Um, I personally, I caught the Arkansas-Indiana game uh, right before uh, New Year's. And um, this guy, Isaiah Joe, went 6 of 17 from 3 that game. And so I looked up his stats. There are only 
three games this year, he has not attempted double-digit threes. He just goes out there and chucks the ball whenever he sees the hoop, and I absolutely love it. He's shooting 35% from three. He's, he's already shot 143 threes this year. Um, wow. And Yeah, so he is just relentless in uh, going out there and, uh, and finding his shot, which is apparently – any three so you do you isaiah joe i'm here for it i'm a fan and uh so whenever i can catch arkansas um i certainly do and they went to one and oh the other night by beating uh buzz williams texas a&m isaiah uh five of 12 from three that game so <laughs> he also rebounds pretty well uh for somebody who shoots the three so shamelessly so anyway, uh, that's going to do it for us this week. Xavier is going to be back in action on Wednesday, which is when we're going to try and have this episode out to you. They will be hosting Seton Hall, and then they will tr- um, host Creighton again this weekend on Saturday. And we will be back with you probably next Tuesday um, to record uh, before Xavier goes to Marquette. So we hope that you guys uh, enjoy this podcast, and um, we will talk to you next week.